we did it we did it we did it um and i think as tara gross would say that was fucking awesome I still remember the first time I heard Emeryville Council Member and Vice Mayor Courtney Welsh speak about housing across the life cycle. Now, I'm used to hearing elected officials talk about housing, often really quite inspiring ways, but it's not often that I feel that they are pushing us housers more than we are pushing them. But here was a relatively new elected official from a small but important city that I have studied for years, pushing housers in an area that has frustrated me for a long, long time our tendency to fight over the right kind of housing to be built, rather than embracing the fact that many, if not most of us, will want and need very different housing at various different times in our lives. We need a housing system that enables us to change, to grow up, to get older, to combine families and households, and sometimes separate them. This is something that I almost never hear from housing leaders, and here was an elected official showing a housing group a simple truth we often ignore. It turns out that Councilmember Welsh isn't just an elected official. She's a professional houser, someone who has worked across the board in our field in policy, social work, consulting, administration, communications, across a diverse set of organizations, from one of Alameda County's continuum of care providers working to assist people struggling with housing instability and homelessness, to the Bay Area Community Land Trust and her current work with the California Housing Defense Fund. She's also someone who's not shy about sharing her own challenges in housing and struggles with housing instability. Someone who knows what it is to look for housing assistance in a Bay Area which seems to be getting more expensive by the day. It also turns out she's prepared to push us on a lot more than housing across the life cycle, no matter how important that is. She's one of the most complete housers I've ever met, someone who tries to see the whole system and figure out ways she can make it better, no matter which of her many hats she happens to be wearing. It's an honor to have her on this second episode of Housing After Dark, the Where We Go From Here podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Awesome. Well, Councilmember Courtney Welsh, welcome to the show. I, uh, I can't tell you how happy I am that you're here. I'm excited. Uh, yeah. This for how long now? I don't know. It's been a minute, but actually when you... In full disclosure, when you said that you would do it, it was still an idea <laughs> to do the podcast. And you helped give me confidence that it was like something worth doing. Because if you were coming on the show, I was like, then it feels like a real show. Oh my gosh. I, that, it feels so, like such an honor. Wow. Uh, I mean, you have a lot of fans. Um, that doesn't prevent you from getting your share of the, online vitriol, which we'll talk about, you know, perhaps down the road. Um, but I figure, you know, again, yeah, this is a, I mean, this is a show where I mostly uh, try to interview people that I admire. So it's, I'm really excited that you're here. Um, and I have a long list of questions for you, but let's start with the, the thing I talked about in my intro uh, about what originally drew me to, to you and your work, which is uh, this idea of how important it is for us to think about housing and to build housing and to plan for housing for folks across the life cycle. So what does that mean for you, like planning housing across the life cycle? Yeah, you know, I housing's always thought of or discussed in a way where it's like a product or it's an industry, and it is, but really, and I think this is where people who often utilize the phrase housing is a human right what the root of it is housing is something that you need to live like in in my opinion it's oxygen food water housing like hands down you will die if you do not have proper housing Folks who are experiencing homelessness, their life expectancy, especially those who are experiencing chronic homelessness, their life expectancy is 50 years old. Life expectancy, it's shifted a bit lower since the pandemic, but on average, people were living to be about 80 to 84 years old. So you're talking about you will be missing out on three decades, almost three and a half decades of life, possibly, if you do not have proper housing. 
from the day you are born to the day you will die, you will need housing. It's non-negotiable. You cannot theoretically opt out of needing housing. Some people do opt out of housing, but most folks do not want to opt out of housing. They need housing and you need housing every single day, the way you need oxygen, the way you need water, the way you need food, the way you need sleep. So when I talked about housing across the life cycle and how having an abundance of housing available throughout communities is so important, it's because God willing, you live to be 84, 94, 104 years old, chances are over the course of your life, your housing needs will change. Yep. And it can change for various reasons. Your family composition can change. Your ability, your physical abilities can change. Your employment situation can change. And so when we have an abundance of housing available in our communities, you don't have to be worried about any changes to your life, either gradual or sudden, because you know there is housing available that will work with whatever your situation may be. And, and I use the example of myself all the time, especially you talk about gradual change. I'm 35 years old right now. 10 years ago, I was 25. I was a single adult. I had no children. Um, my parents and grandmother were considerably younger and didn't have certain physical issues. And so I'm, you know, I could utilize the studio or one bedroom and be completely fine. Now, here I am only a decade later, and I have two children. I have parents that are older. I have a grandmother who has some some health ailments mm -hmm. and potentially might need to come live with me. And so now my housing needs are completely different, just over 10 years. And I mean, really, like my kids were born five years apart. So I had my older son when I was 27, turning 28. I Then five years later, I have another child. So not even within the full 10 years that things actually change. But it's just over those 10 years, things changed completely. And like, I'm in elected office. So, hey, I don't know if people know this, but when you're serving a community, they typically want you to live there. Yeah. So I am bound to Emeryville for a considerable amount of time so that, you know, I have to be within a certain parameter, obviously, to be in compliance with that. And so I have very active children. So like accessibility to outside space is very important. When I was single, like I, you know, I can go for a walk and that's fine. I'm not necessarily looking for a park or need a backyard. Um, we have a pet, like these things, my life is just completely different. So when you have an abundance of housing, it's like, okay, I now, you know, a studio or one bedroom no longer serves me and my family. I need, you know, a more uh, family um, serving unit or space. And it's a lot of people realize the limitations around the changes that happen in their life when it comes to transitioning to different housing spaces. Yeah. And then even on the other side, maybe you have a great space that does meet your needs, but you know that it's so rare to find a space that works for you. You're worried about, oh my gosh, if I lost this place, where would I go? What would I do? Because I know how rare it is to find this space that works so well for me. And now potentially you have people staying in living situations that aren't the best because they're worried about availability in the outside market. So when we talk about housing abundance and, and the life cycle, it's really just about stability and being able to serve people and serve their families and be accessible to their needs, no matter how gradually or quickly they may come and making sure that we're not just a minor change in someone's life isn't completely disrupted because now they don't have housing access. Yeah. I mean, this resonates so much for, for me and um, it's actually a piece that I'm working on. I think it'll be one of the next few pieces that I write in the Substack is about this relationship between stability and mobility, 
Because what you talked about is partly like, again, I think we have this like idea that somehow we achieve housing stability by people by fixing them in this house and like, you know, right. and then they never move again. Right. Or they can't that's move. That's impossible. Impossible. It's like for most people, you're going to move at least. I mean, you're growing up, right? So you're you're born and you're you know ideally living with parents or caretakers, guardians, and then you grow up and you want to move out and have your own life. Like you're gonna you're gonna move at least once in yeah. your life, or you know your family moves, whatever it may be. But it's like it's it's thinking that people stability is people being where they are forever is actually not true either. And it's not like I had mentioned just previously, people being worried that they're not going to be able to find what they can find, what they have right now. That is also a way of being trapped and also being vulnerable. Because again, what happens, you lose anything can happen, you can lose that space. Fire, if you're a renter and there's lack of renter protections, you could be potentially vulnerable to just any type of eviction. And again, your needs change. What if you just don't want to live there anymore? It's like, I, you know, I'm going it through it myself right now. You know, I have, you know, my family, I now live, have more space than I've ever had because I'm trying to bring a child into my family. And I'm also preparing for the fact both my wife and I have aging parents who right now are fine in the housing that they have, but like, that's not going to necessarily last. And like, can I provide, you know, and again, I think, you know, hopefully I have this ability to have choices in the market, but most people don't. And it's just like it. Yeah. Having that ability to find what you need. And yeah, I mean, I can go through all the addresses I've had when I was younger and single, uh, but I've also, you know, gotten married and all of a sudden had a 12 year old in that needed a house. I've got a nephew who's going through some things and needs a place to stay. Like I, you know, these things happen in life and yeah, we don't have a housing system. I think that really appreciates that or values that. And it's not just the market actors, unfortunately. I think a lot of our friends in the nonprofit community and the kind of good side of housing also kind of lose sight of that need for mobility and flexibility and change. Right. Um, and I get it. It's so hard to fight for the stability of the housing that, that the limited housing that has been made affordable that, um, that, you know, it can be hard to fight for for mobility when it seems like mobility is the problem. And and I think that I know it it is coming from a good place, right? Like, yeah. I want you to be stable. And if it's like, if you have to choose between stability and mobility, what do you choose, right? Well, okay, I need you to be stable more than I need you to be able to move. But again, like I said, how stable are you if this is like one of maybe two or three options and then you're also not the only family or only person who has these needs so if there's only three available and one goes away yep. so there's two left but there's 10 people 10 res you know uh households in need of whatever this unit's offering okay well then eight people eight households are now out of luck so now what Right. So it's it's not. But I, I understand, especially when it comes around funding and how to prioritize what gets built where and how for who it's the prioritization is is around stabilization. I also think because we are in a crisis where, you know, it's like triage. It's like, what do you you know, you've got to pick where do you go in first? And it's like, okay, we need, people are losing housing like crazy. Okay. We need to stabilize them. Yeah. And then because we do need to stabilize what's going on first before we can really even dream bigger and talk about mobility and, you know, accessibility and all these things. But it's, I mean, it's really like housing triage out here. So I want to come back to this sort of stability mobility question. And actually one of the things I love for us to think about is, is the role that all the kind of trauma that communities, especially the African-American community, especially in Oakland, Emeryville, Berkeley and Bay area have experienced in terms of displacement, like how much that trauma informs our like housing policy in a way that we can we're better at, certain forms of stability than let's say we are at the kind of stability that allows for more mobility. But before I want to do that, before we get to that, 
I want to go to your actual real day job. <laughs> so one of the things I admire about you is that you do housing. It's, you know, it's your main job. It's your side hustle. It's your hobby, I think. <laughs> um, you know, and, and you, in the course of your career, have one of the most varied and impressive housing, professional housing resumes that I've seen. You've worked in homelessness. You've worked for true sort of community land trusts. Talk about like stabilization focused housing. You work in CLTs. Um, and now you work for one of the original Yimby like approaches, you know, sue the suburbs, California housing defense fund. Shout out Steve Menendian. Uh, it's a really truly varied experience. And I'm kind of curious sort of how you got into housing and how it led you to this, to where you are today. Yeah, well, how I actually got into housing was um, when my older son was about six months old, we were displaced from where we were renting in West Oakland through an owner move and eviction. Um, it was still completely legal at that time, but traumatic nonetheless. Um, I was working part time remotely before it was cool and was making a very good part time salary and had like no issues paying the rent where I was, but then was forced out into a uh, basically war zone of a rental housing market. At that time, studios were easily going for $2,500 to $3,000. And of course, it's please be making two and a half to three times the amount of rent. And it's like, okay, well, I'm making a good amount of money, but I'm not making $9,000 right now um, to be able to get this, be eligible for this studio. And um, I ended up getting some homelessness assistance from Alameda County to keep us in a hotel for a couple of weeks that ran out. I still was not able to find us anywhere at the time I didn't have a car. So staying close to where um, my son was going to go to daycare. That was the other thing. He was set to go to daycare like the following month and I was going to be working part-time and then making twice as much as what I was making with a very good part-time salary. Um, so needing to stay in West Oakland was really important because my employment um, was dependent on it as far as this is where my childcare is going to be. So I need to be close to, you know, childcare because I'm not driving at this time. And so, um, I was not able to find anything. So my grandmother had called and she said, you know, I know it's far away, but I really think you should come down here and down here, meaning San Diego. Um, she's like, you cannot be unstable with a baby that young it's too stressful if she's like if you know if you were by yourself and you just said you wanted to couch surf and figure it out I would get it but she's like you cannot be hopping around like this with a six-month-old it's not healthy for either of you so um yeah I got a ticket that night and went down to San Diego and we lived there for a year and a half while I restabilize. And it was a really big eye opener when we had came back to visit. That was like middle of September. We came back to visit and get some things out of storage. It was the first week of December. Um, we were riding through our old neighborhood and right at 34th and Peralta underneath 580, the 10 community had popped up and it was how it's empty now it was empty like that before we left yeah and so you're talking about over the course of 10 weeks or so hundreds of people were living underneath the freeway and i know you know there's always this um disinformation campaign about who is experiencing homelessness oh people aren't actually from here they come from other states because it's warm and it's like yeah, okay, no. It's it's like some of the people who are living here once lived in homes close to here. And it was really an eye-opener just to see how vulnerable 
every, all of us are, but especially me. And it's like, I was doing everything right. I got on the wait list while I was pregnant. So I'd have daycare and I, you know, did my paid family, you know, had a job Mm -hmm. that offered paid family leave and was working part-time and was getting to, you know, getting ready to go back to work and, you know, had everything in alignment that you would expect for someone. And one thing happens out of my control and I'm completely destabilized. And I have a lot of access and a lot of privileges. And I'm like, if I can get destabilized, anyone can. And it's far too easy because if it was that easy to destabilize me, then I'm not the only person at risk. And if you lose one of those privileges, how easy is it to become destabilized? So that um, inspired me to transition into wanting to move home. And because I had considered maybe just staying in San Diego, my parents had retired and moved to Arizona. So they were closer to me down there and my sister's there, my grandmother. And I thought like, maybe I should just stay down here. But I really wanted to move home and work on affordable housing. Yeah. And um, so I ended up getting a temporary role in April 2017 and moved back, had sublet. Um, we had then end up moving into a transitional housing shelter, Oakland Elizabeth House, and lived there until August, yeah, August 2019. And then we're able to get um, an affordable housing place um, closer in Southern Alameda County. And so, but through all of that, um, I'm like, look how much it took <laughs> for me to like rebuild and restabilize and get like my own housing from start to finish. It took four years, four years for me, like consistently every time there was a opening for a wait list for an affordable housing developer, I'm getting an application. I am. Yeah. You know, I I used to um, on Oakland's city um, website, they have like a update of their construction projects and they'll tell you how many are going to be earmarked for below market rate. I would note those properties so I could keep an eye out on who because sometimes, you know, you don't know who's going to be actually running the below market rate program. Sometimes it's. the actual property management, sometimes they have, they outsource it, but like knowing, okay, so we're going to have some below market rate units here. They're going to have some there. I'm on this wait list. I've signed up for everyone's mailing list. So like, like Saha will send out emails about openings, like signed up for all of the city's websites to see like when there was openings for below market rate, um, you know, uh, units, you know, the Section 8 waitlist, like I'm on everyone's mailing list to get all these notifications for everything. And it took, yeah, four years. And so I'm like, this is, I mean, it, I really had a wonderful kind of rebuilding experience being at Oakland Elizabeth House. But during that time, like the irony is I'm working on affordable housing and I don't have my own affordable housing. Um But really what I wanted to do and the way I had gone through roles can attest to this. I wanted to learn like not just what got us here, but what are the pathways out and starting off at MPH, like just getting uh, bearings on housing policy in general, who are the big players, coalition building, how to support how to organizations support one another in these um, in changing policy and crafting policy. And during that time when I was there, um, they really started um, focusing in on housing being healthcare. And, you know, a lot of money from Kaiser was coming through because it's like, yeah, you know, you send people home with ailments and they're not stably housed, like how do you think they can heal properly? They cannot. Or if they have chronic issues that requires their medications to be refrigerated, or you have, 
you're healing and you have wounds that need to be, you know, you need to live in a very clean environment. And that's very impossible when you're out on the streets, keep things like wounds clean and make sure that, you know, stitches are healing properly. And, you know, so there was a big push. You, I got to see the transition to really focusing on like, this is a communal issue. It's not, housing's always been thought of as like a personal matter, but it's, it's not a personal matter. Our communities are made of residents. Residents live in homes. It impacts the community, whether it impacts you directly or not. And then at um, Homeownership San Francisco, being um, the program coordinator and working um, with the below market rate homeownership program, which I had kind of heard of, but it's kind of like an urban legend. Um, it's like, oh, they have like BMR homes for sale in the city. And you're like, what? Like, that seems like not real or something that doesn't come around too often. I didn't realize you worked there, homeownership too. So if everybody wants to see the research agenda of Alex Shafford, all you need to do is go to the council member's CV and sort of, <laughs> we're, 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 we're here. Like, but yeah, that was great. Like, because as a younger person, and, and this is always kind of an issue and why you need a diverse coalition of people at the table when you're discussing things like housing issues. As a young person, and a mother just of just one young child, my big focus was on how to prevent yeah. younger people from being displaced and as renters and this and that. But then part of my role was to also work with foreclosure prevention. And what was also going on were um, black and brown seniors were losing their homes and they're, you know, sig significantly older, 80s, some, some were in their 90s. And they're losing their homes or their homes are becoming un unlivable. And what, how could someone who's lived in the same place for 40 years afford anything that was available as far as rental or to buy anything else? And then so you see this big transition of seniors who were once homeowners yeah. now being thrown into housing insecurity. Totally. And some of it was um, more like same old stuff that we saw in 2008, really bad reverse mortgage loans, very predatory loan companies with very complicated contracts. And when folks are in a dire need of funds, a reverse mortgage can be attractive, but they have very... Um, very dishonest clauses or clauses that are not forthcoming about some of the penalties that might take place. And some of them were even things as simple as a late payment, not even late within the 30 days late, a late payment would, could result in you losing your home. And they are going out similar again to 2008. Some of these predatory loan companies are going out to these communities or they're doing what we were doing, but backwards. We would get a list from the uh, from the assessor's office of, on folks who had defaulted and we would do outreach to them. Yeah, the loan companies are doing that too, except they're looking to either make a shit ton of money off of you through fees and interest and et cetera, or they're hoping that you default on a payment and then they're able to take your home from you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, tragic to see it, it's truly criminal. I think what has happened, Oh, definitely. To, especially to a certain generation or multiple generations of black and brown homeowners and low income homeowners in the United States, particularly, you know, California is as bad as anywhere. And that's, particularly shameful because we're supposed to be better. Right. And you think about how so much displacement has gone on, definitely in San Francisco and definitely here in the East Bay. A lot of folks, even like myself, a grandparent or a great grandparent owns a home and possibly several family members are now living with yeah. them to avoid having to move further out to the East Bay up to Vallejo, you know, down out to Stockton, Fremont, you know, 
there it's it's like the home means it's yes it's someone's home but the home ownership piece is keeping multiple generations of one family stable at least still rooted in the community because there's no other options for them to either buy or to rent so when the the head of household potentially loses this home you're potentially destabilizing multiple generations of one family. Not to toot my own horn, but I'm excited that hopefully in the future we will have your fellow Bishop O'Dowd graduate, Adam Briones, here on the yes. podcast to talk about some work that he and I have been doing together on multifamily homeownership and, and this in particular sort of shining a light on intergenerational homeownership and all these ways in which, yeah, homes in many ways are this huge, can be this huge, that are owned by older generations of the family are kind of a bulwark against instability, against homelessness, against so many like forced migrations to faraway places that you don't necessarily uh, need to go in order to, to find home. Um, it, it's such an important part. But yeah, and again, all this conversation reminds me of, again, back to what we talked about, about mobility and stability and housing across the life cycle. I mean, when, it, when there's so many people out there that are actively trying to destabilize people. Yeah, it becomes and you have to fight for that first basic stability it just becomes hard to then craft a real estate system that also enables mobility. Right. right. I mean, that becomes that you mentioned like your your order of higher order of what some sort of Maslow hierarchy of needs of systems. It's like people are always going to fight for that basic stability before they fight for that mobility because it seems like a luxury when it's not. It's, we, we both agree that that's that mobility should not be a luxury, but they get placed against each other. And I, I, I think even just with the market and the way housing has been commodified and it's a market and it's a vehicle to build commercial wealth, especially yeah. it's, it's always the focus is always going to be the return on the investment and people looking at a rental ledger or a real estate portfolio don't recognize it as these are people's homes. This is where people come home to after days at work. This is where they're raising their children. This is where they're growing old with their loved one or their partner. And so they don't look at it as a part of a person's pillar of stability for their life. It's just a business yeah. for them. And I mean, and then this is kind of like we get into the argument a lot of times with rent control people will say, oh, well, if I can't raise the rent X amount of dollars, then, you know, I won't be able, you know, it just pays for the maintenance and then I won't make any money off of it. And the whole reason I even signed up to do this was to make money off of it. And it's like, that shouldn't, in, in my opinion, be the focus when we talk about housing, because again, food, water, sleep, housing, <laughs> oxygen, all of like, are you going to come back on the promise me you'll come back on the show because we're going to talk about all of these things again and oh, I, yeah. you know this would be it would be wonderful to have you because yeah I couldn't agree more um you know so many aspects of the way our real estate and housing business work just have to change they just can't. I mean because it's a it's a business for people and then but and I I always say like you know you have to recognize you're in the business of actually adding scarcity to a human need like that is what you're doing. And if you're okay with that, you know, morally, like, you know, that's, that's fine. But recognize that, especially I think as we realize more and more that housing, again, it's not just a personal matter, it's a communal matter. And if it's, if some of us aren't safe, then none of us are safe. Yeah. And that the shift and the focus around housing is moving more towards Plans like having social housing where the money being paid is for the maintenance and this does not produce a profit for someone or whatever profits or whatever equity is given directly back to those who are living there that have paid into it and not some other entity, not some property owner or property management company. And I really do hope that's where we're going because at the end of the day, we cannot truly say it's a human right if we're always going to place 
the return of investment above mm-hmm. human safety and a human need. And that, I mean, and then, you know, even the way the laws are written, it's, all, you know, the there's laws to protect against your return of your investment when you're a property owner and you're renting. There's still benefits you get even if you own rental property and you're keeping it, it vacant and no one's living there as people are dying out on the street. So I, it's we have to get to a point where housing is truly the you know it's not looked at as a commodity i really want us to look at it like how we look at food how we look at air yeah i mean i think for me one of the things i i think a lot about as a professional you know as somebody who makes my living in housing in some way shape or form you know i get paid money and i talk about housing or write about housing or i advise about housing or do housing things Housing is expensive because it requires a lot of professionals who work really like many of whom are very diligent, highly trained, spent years in education, have really high technical skills to do all kinds of different things. Right. In any different house is so much. And it's like, what's the difference between making a living in housing and making some sort of like excess profit that is like resulting in people losing the housing that you're working on? And that's the hard part. Right. Because it's like, you know, somebody somebody comes and fixes up your house, like they deserve to be paid a living that can afford them to buy their own house. Right. Right. Um, it's like so many of us, and so I think this is one of the hardest challenges, right? Making a pencil, making the, making it all pencil. People getting paid legitimate money to do the things that we need them to do. Right. But so that people can have housing, not so that those people get kicked out of their housing or can't afford the housing that they're being built. And I think that's, that's a big challenge, I think, for me. And, and I think for us as housing professionals is to, is to you know, making a living and a profit, right? What's the line between, or, you know, these are complicated, complicated, uh, the spread, you know, a lot of times the pro forma doesn't show any profit, but a lot of people are making a living. Um, and so, uh, yeah, this is a hard thing. I mean, and so that actually brings me back, I mean, to, to this question about housing professionals. And again, it's, I'm super excited to have uh, all of the listeners here that are working on becoming professionals that are uh, amateurs and sort of, you know, housing side hustle folks. Uh, but a lot of who I think, you know, in many ways, one of the key audiences that I write for are other professionals. And so when you think about your career as a houser and all the housers that you know, like, are there things that you want professional housers to think about differently? Is it is it the profit question? Is it the housing across the life cycle question? What's the message to the professional crowd i think my question is like what way do you want to bend is it the the moral arc and i really do think we have to again get to a place where housing is not viewed as something the the main focus is not building wealth like that can't be the focus because even on the personal level, right? And we see this all the time, especially at Cal HDF, people want to protect their their home equity and the value of their home because they have so much writing and invested into it. And I understand that just on a surface level, but then if you are advocating for policies that are now limiting where people can live, how many people can live there. You don't want something like, oh, a duplex next to your single family home because of some idea around it lowering your property value or being next to renters, lowering everything is how do I protect this value of my house? And I don't give a damn if it impacts my community in a far more harmful way as long as I've protected my investment that's fine. And it to me, it's even more stressful when I think about being a Black person who has been displaced and came back. There are a lot of Black homeowners that subscribe to that thought process as well. And then it's 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 more complex than that, right? Because homeownership and its relationship with the black community is also, you know, it's it's very complex. 
we have been negatively impacted by um, redlining and just all types of racial, uh, financial oppression and limiting our access to financial products to help us grow wealth. So when people of color who have historically been left out of building wealth through property ownership are worried about how this is going to impact their property values. How can I say that's not something you should worry about when that is definitely your home more than likely, especially depending on where you live, you lived in an area that was traditionally black and brown and was once redlined. Your home was devalued at a certain point any damn way. So now how can I come around and say, oh, don't worry about that. No, you do need to worry about that. But then I feel like that's when policy comes into play. This is where reparations can come into play, helping to right those wrongs. So people who have been excluded from the process have an opportunity to balance out those past deficits. And then we're not stopping housing access for other people because we're worried about home values because still at the end of the day, Black people are disproportionately experiencing homelessness here in the Bay Area. Yeah. So it's like if if I became a homeowner, like I can't stop housing access to protect, like, because then I'm I'm more than likely harming another Black person because that's who's experiencing homelessness. It's, it's Black men, we're talking about individuals, and then it's Black families typically black females, black single female-led families that are experiencing homelessness. So I can't do that, but then that is where the policy needs to come in to address those issues. Um, but with saying that, I think as housers, um, and you know, you see a lot of this all the time, oh, Yimbies are all white and this, this, and that, and there's no people of color. One, making sure that you are amplifying voices of color that are housers and actually listening to, like, don't promote me just to try to prove some random NIMBY on Twitter wrong. Actually amplify my voice, voices like mine, women of color, Black women, Black people who have experienced homelessness, other people of color who have experienced homelessness, Make sure that is truly actively a part of the conversation. You do not need to prop me up like, look, Courtney's Black and she says the same things. Like, yes, but are you actually listening to Courtney? Are you including Courtney into the conversation? Are you including, because there's, it's not also just me. There's tons of Black women who are in all types of areas of housing, nonprofit housing, working um in executive levels at housing authorities all across the Bay Area, tenants' rights organizations, like all across like Alameda County and, and the nine counties really of the that make up the Bay Area, there are a lot of specifically Black women leading the charge on several different areas. Are you amplifying them and including them and supporting them the way that they need outside of just telling someone for the umpteenth time on Twitter or Facebook that yes, Black people are in housing that are saying the things that we're saying as well. And then also recognizing that there is a lot of pain around housing here in the Bay Area for the Black community. And we had talked about this before we had got online, you know, this not having the same things that you're used to growing up. And yes, communities change, but watching your community dwindle and not really having a core and that Black center that we used to is really devastating for a lot of people. And then you start to feel like you don't belong in your own home anymore. And you just don't see, it's it's not even that other people can't move in and new people aren't allowed here. That's not what it is either. It's 
you feel like there's less and less opportunities for you to grow and thrive here. And then it's compounded by the high cost of living and then less and less people you grew up with are here and you start to just lose that sense of community. And it's, it's, it's more, it's deeper and it's more emotional than I think people realize when you start to feel like you lose your sense of community, even when you have your housing, is my community here with me? Thanks for joining us on the podcast edition of my Where We Go From Here Substack, also known as Housing After Dark with Alex Schaffron. I'm thrilled to have you listening. And if you haven't already, please do us a favor and subscribe to the Substack and to the podcast. Words are cheap, but podcasts are not. And if you want to support this work, please consider a paid subscription. You can also give us some love or some likes on social media and help more friends and colleagues dive deep into California housing. And for my readers out there who prefer their words on a page and not in your headphones, you have my promise that podcasts will always be transcribed. So I want to dig into your community a little bit, actually, in this case, specifically Emeryville. Now, this is a story I know, and again, from our previous conversations and talk about that is both a story that still, you know, kind of face to face with the pain and the displacement and all of the sort of stories that are happening. But it's also one, I think, uh, that involves some success and some joy and Emeryville kind of doing things a bit differently. I think of, uh, and we're going to claim him because, or her, or whoever it is on 40th, uh, going from, and for those of you who don't know, Emeryville, one of the main drags is 40th, which comes up into Oakland, into my neighborhood. And there's somebody on the side who has a big sign that says, celebrate black joy. It's on one of the houses on the corner and when you go around the bend. And I always think about that in some ways, actually, because it feels a little bit reverse. I live in a neighborhood that was much more black previously and has seen really significant displacement of the African-American community for years and years and years and years. And I, But now if I go down 40th and into Emeryville, in many ways, it feels like something is different. And one of the ways I think some of you may have come across uh, Councilmember Welsh was before she was Councilmember. I believe you were just a, a housing commissioner at Emeryville and a client when you were in Justin Phillips' really amazing uh, piece, which I'm going to put a link to in the web version of this. If people haven't read it, they should go back from 2021 uh, about how Emeryville was a bit different and that as a it was a place that for him as a as a black man, it felt like a very different Bay Area and actually Emeryville gained African-American residents between, I think it was the 2010 and the 2020 census, which is just say something that most of the rest of the Bay Area has not. So tell me, can we, I would love to talk a little bit about this uh, kind of Emeryville transformation. And let, let's start. So how long have you been in Emeryville? And, 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 and tell us a little bit about coming to Emeryville and transitioning from a professional planner to an elected official who knows a lot about housing. So yeah, you know, a lot of folks know, you know, I grew up in Oakland. And so my engagement with Emeryville growing up, I had a cousin that lived in Watergate. So we'd go over there for holidays. Um, My (laughs) parents used to come over to Kimball's Carnival, which was a nightclub. Also, there was a previous one called Silks that my mother was a big fan of. And she said some of our still current elected leaders used to be in there dancing all night as well with her. So we won't say names. it is. I mean, it is part <laughs> of Emeryville's legacy that you are all just carrying on a uh, tradition of having fun, sometimes legal, sometimes not. You know, oh, right. The, we, the, we were known as the most rottenest city. I forget which chief justice at the time had gave us, it was from the 1920s, but they did say, I mean, because it was a city that was pretty much ripe for corruption. It was very business focused. It was Um, designed to be corrupt. It was, was, yeah, like no one's keeping an eye on it. Super small, like no one from Oakland was, I mean, when you're, when you, at some point, what our police chief was also the city manager. I mean, it, it was just the Wild West here for for a bit of time. But growing up, um, 
Emeryville was still very much in its industrial stage and then started adding housing. Watergate has always been there. That was built up in 78. And then Pacific Park Plaza, the big, tall, white building. If you're driving on 80, you can actually see it from multiple parts of the Bay Area. But that was built up in 1983. So those were the two big housing complexes. And of course, um, our triangle neighborhood that, as we call it, between San Pablo and Adeline, where many of the single family homes are located, that was where people mainly lived. But it was very much in an industrialized town. And so like even where I live right now, previously grown, when I was growing up, this used to be a United Artist movie theater over in this corner. And so there was like nothing, I mean, it was just old steel mills, um, factor, uh, what, one of our um, prize fighter used to be a, a, a cannery just down on Hollis. Sure. So Emeryville has had to be very creative when it has come to redevelopment and how to include housing in a space that was mainly just factories for a, a long time. And so a lot of this growth, I actually got to see happen live. I worked in Emeryville at Best Buy and at Pack and Save back in the day. So our familiarity, you know, once Bay Street came up, that was a big thing. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, a closer mall, especially if you lived in West Oakland, but you didn't want to go to San Francisco and you didn't want to go out to Pleasanton or didn't want to go to, to San Leandro. You could go over to Bay Street and get some good shopping, hang out, go to the movies. Um, so I've been exposed to the changes Emeryville went through. And really what it comes down to is just the willingness of the elected officials, current and previous, that prioritized housing. You can be creative. Like, for example, uh, when I was running, um, they had asked, you know, what was our take on SB9, SB10? And Emeryville got rid of their single family zoning. I don't even know how long ago. It was over, it's several years. It's probably at least a decade. And, you know, focuses on uh, transit oriented density and building around transit centers. And, you know, we have our own free uh, Emory go round shuttle that will take you up to MacArthur BART. Uh, one of our newer developments, the Emory has a shuttle that will take you to West Oakland. So, it's really about focusing on how to make this a livable community and transitioning it from this factory town and this one, you know, mainly big, then went to big box retail. Like, how can we make this a thriving community where families are welcome, retirees are welcome? We've got smaller businesses, we've got bigger businesses, and we're making it all happen within one square mile. This is something I tell anybody who who will listen, and or and I told Mayor Botters, and I've told you that you, when I wrote in the Road to Resegregation, my first book, which is about the Bay Area, there's really only one character in the book that was a bad guy <laughs> in the book that is now a good guy. Piedmont, you're still you were a bad guy then, and you're still not in the good category, and I won't name any other places. But Emeryville is amazing. And some of it is, I think that I missed some things. I think that some of the transformation about housing was underway at the time. I wasn't focused as much on the more recent stuff. So I'm, I'll excuse myself. I'll stand by, you know, Emeryville in the book is a, a place where, yeah, you know, the business leaders and the big corporations that kind of ran the city for a long time mostly just built shopping spaces that continued to employ lower wage Oakland and Berkeley workers, took all their tax base, but wasn't really housing them. But now you are actually housing them. And I think, you know, again, I think some of that was underway and I missed it. So my apologize for missing it. But some of it is also that not that you read, you know, you tra you changed things like things have changed. And I think that that is really important. And I'm I'm assuming that you know there are folks before you that deserve credit and and hopefully after you that will continue on and in, you're in the middle of it. 
Um, and it's pretty amazing to see. It's pretty amazing to see. And I hope that other, you know, everybody, all the jurisdictions and players in the housing game, hopefully read my book. And if you're a bad character, become a better, better one. I mean, I think it's, it comes down to priority. And again, yeah. because we don't, I also think we're not stuck. Isn't the right word I want to use, but we have to be creative with our space because again, we're only one square mile. So we can't go out. We have to go up. If we're going to meet our arena numbers, we have to do <laughs> multifamily housing. That's going to be going up and then incorporating open space around that. Cause we can't, Oh, we're going to just do ADUs behind all the single family homes. Like, a certain city that I won't mention tried to pull off with their housing element and have a full ADU. <laughs> HCD said you cannot have a full ADU housing element. It's like, well, we have 90 ADUs. Is this going to work? No, it's not going to work. Okay, well, this is what we have. And so we, it's like we want, we actually want people to be able to move here and have that balance of jobs and housing. We have, we're, we're called this, the city of art and innovation. And we have such an amazing um, range of, to not repeat myself, innovative companies here that we would love for these people to be able to live here. Like we're doing immunotherapies for cancer. We're doing all types of biotech. We've got, you know, upside foods. They're, they're making cell-based um, food, al- what is it, meat alternatives. Yeah, And so- We've got all these very cool things happening, like on the technology side and all types of different fields, food, health, beauty. Enter- entertainment, you know, we give Pixar that, sh- that <laughs> shout out. <laughs> Definitely entertainment. And we would just love for the majority of folks to just be able to walk out their door and walk to work or hop on the Emery go round or bike. And it's like, oh, yeah, I'll be at work in, oh, maybe 10 minutes. You know, I'm just going to take my bike down there and really have it be this little thriving city that's just filled with people walking, getting to where they need to go. And it's to me that that signals such a healthy community where you can live and work within such a um not confined space. That's not the word I want to use, but within close proximity and not have to worry about, because that's the big thing now, right? Like the the super commuter is having to come in and that has its impact on not just you personally, your mental health, your physical health, um, but family structure and then our environment, obviously. Um so it's just something that in Emeryville, we prioritize. We want to see, make impacts on our environment, on our, our on our economy, on families in the best way. And housing is a way that we can do that. Transportation is also a way we can do that. And that's the things that that's a really just part of our value system here. One of my favorite quotes of yours in the Justin Phillips piece um, is that you talk about how it's important not just that Black people can come to Emeryville, but that they can stay and that they can sustain life in Emeryville. And so you just talked about a bunch of aspects of the transformation. I mean, what for you are some of the most important things that either you've done or that you're really hoping to do to kind of continue that process of trying to make life sustainable for people, for black people, for people of color, for lower income people, for whomever? You know, a big piece around specifically housing, when we were discussing, um, I live in the Christie core. So these, um, whoever will be living in these newer developments will, will be my neighbors. Um, really ha- having a voice around making sure that when we are developing, we're thinking about family-sized units. Because I think about myself, like being in a two-bedroom, again, what if my parents need to come live with me? Um, The boys shouldn't have to share a room forever. So we're talking about three and four-bedroom units. 
And initially, back when Emeryville was being designed, and you see this in Pacific Park Plaza and in Watergate, and even some of our newer but older housing stock, everything, it's single family, it's not, sorry, not single family homes, but it's studios, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, very, very few, three bedrooms, very, very, very few four bedrooms, especially in um, multifamily properties. If I'm not mistaken, I feel like there's another place, but I can't think of it. But the only four bedrooms I think we have outside of some of the single family homes that might have four bedrooms is in Ashola Vista, our EH building that's on San Pablo. And um, it's income restricted. I think they serve 30 to 80% AMI. So that's only going to be for, you know, you have to be um, income eligible, but also with those situations, your household composition has to be eligible. And typically they want you to have at least, some places say six, but I've commonly seen, you need to have at least seven people in your household to be eligible for a four bedroom. And it's like, okay, that's- <laughs> it's a lot. That's a lot of people. Right, that's a lot of people. But also the challenges, typically when people have six or seven people in their household, it's not always like two adults with five kids or four kids. There's typically another adult in the household composition. And that adult probably, even if it's a senior, might have some SSI or retirement income coming in. So then it's like you have too many people, the income is too high even though you're eligible by the household composition. So there were a few folks that came up and were eligible for that piece there, uh, for those units there, but they a lot of times didn't have the um, household composition. So they might've had only five or six people or four people. And then, so they had to get a waiver to allow them to, to move in. But as we're seeing more and more multi-generational housing uh, family compositions, having things like three and four bedrooms is actually going to be beneficial for Emeryville because it allows you again to start off maybe as a single person that needs a studio or one bedroom and allow you to maybe partner up and have children or if you need or if you want to adopt or now you and your partner have children and you need a, a, a elder um, family member needs to move in, you know that there's places you can move no. to within Emeryville, or if you're somewhere else, if you're living in Berkeley and it's like, oh, I need a three or four bedroom. It's like, oh, they've got some in Emeryville. I can move into Emeryville and that's going to be available. Um, but again, being able to advocate for not just families, but really myself, like I, <laughs> I would like for us to have more three bedrooms and add in some four bedrooms that aren't necessarily income restricted, that aren't necessarily um, have such high um, requirements around um, household composition to be available. And the pushback has been previously, yeah, okay, maybe three bedrooms, but who needs four bedrooms? And the folks, the folks who are saying it are retirees or extremely young people who cannot fathom potentially in 10 years, maybe needing a four bedroom. They, they're, it's like, yeah, you're a retiree. You might be a single retiree. So you're thinking, oh, who needs four bedrooms? And people think that it's just college students roommating, which I still think is okay. Like people who need to live there is four people that need to live there. And they might not live. Also, I feel like that might actually sometimes work better because the turnover might be faster because they're all just single individuals that aren't necessarily attached and it might uh, become available faster for maybe a larger family that can utilize it. But to me, it's like, oh, it's going to be four individual people living in a four bedroom. Like, okay, well, that's four house people. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I'm totally fine with that. As long as I need people to, to be housed and stay housed. But um, yeah, I think that's something um, that's really important because that has been really an issue that people have mentioned why they left Emeryville. They weren't able to find a unit 
that was that an, that was an appropriate size and then within their budget. And so I feel the more that we get online, the more that are available, um, we can make sure families can stay here longer or we'll attract more families that don't live here already because we have these units that are accessible and appropriate for a, a larger family size. I couldn't agree more. Um, if you're, you know, if you're using the phrase overhoused in your vocabulary, it's probably something you need to check yourself and just sort of ask, like, yeah, there's definitely some overhoused people, but none of the ones that are impacted by housing policy. Uh, and it's just so hard. And again, I think that goes back to this original conversation and the, like, yeah, our system, again, I understand how brutal it out, is out there in the affordable housing world, but I think we've just created a system that is designed to be inflexible, um, that treats people having an extra bedroom as like a problem to be solved. Uh, and again, so that when, again, so somebody's older and yeah, maybe they could eventually, they would be happier in a different type of unit and, and that unit would be better for a family size. That's true. And obviously it'd be great if they were able to choose that, but sort of unfortunately, yeah, we do, we spend so much time again, pushing people in ways and not working about how do we make more opportunities? How do we build more in this particular way? How do we have yeah enough housing to go around so that we're having less of these problems of scarcity and more, and again, abundance is a challenge. I mean, having too many housing units is a problem that I want to have. Right. Um, and it doesn't, it comes with challenges of keeping them afloat and keeping them going. But I think that that we can solve for, um, not when there's not enough units to go around and we're all fighting over the crumbs. The market should always be in favor of the people who need to be housed. Amen. Amen. On that note, um, the other reason why I think, and just be clear from this conversation, that you should really re listen uh, to Councilmember Courtney Welsh and not just tag her in a tweet uh, is that she says things that are different than everybody else. And there's some serious quality there. Uh, across, you know, I, I don't haven't found an organization yet that is a complete housing organization. I don't know. Uh, but I you are as complete of a houser as I have met. Uh, and it is a true honor to have you on here. Thank you so much for for coming on and for Thank really you. helping make this podcast possible. I mean, the we idea did it. we did it. We did it. Um, and I think as Tara Gross would say, that was fucking awesome. Uh, <laughs> thank you all for listening. Thank you, council member, again, for coming on. And I hope you come back. I feel like we've just scratched the surface. Yes, anytime. Thanks so much. Thank you.